It was Friday, and Jesus stood accused of sedition, not of blasphemy, a civil crime, and not a religious one. Rome punished for such crimes with painful, visible death by crucifixion. In the age of Roman domination, only Rome crucified, and they did so often, and they did so mostly for political reasons. The two men that were killed alongside Jesus, in some translations, they're, they're translated, the word is translated as thieves, but the word could also mean insurgents, supporting the idea that Rome crucified mainly as a political weapon to send a political message. And here was the message, do not stir dissent, or this will be the result. New York Times bestseller Stephen Mansfield described crucifixion in his 2014 article as an act of state terror. By the time that Rome had domination in the time of Jesus, their justice system had already perfected such things as strangling and stoning and burning and even boiling in oil as methods of torture and execution. But crucifixion was saved for those times when Rome wanted to send a lingering message. So Rome wanted to send a message with the cross, but Rome wasn't alone in that. I want to suggest to you this morning that God also was sending his own message with the cross. In fact, I want to suggest that God was sending a variety of messages with the cross, messages that he elaborates on throughout his Bible. Now the cross was the most heinous death known to man at the time. And I wonder if you ever think about why did Jesus have to die by crucifixion? I mean, why couldn't he have been beheaded or have his throat slit? I mean, he still would have shed his blood. You know, and I know the Old Testament said, you know, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. But, but God could have made that curse anything different that he wanted. Why did Jesus' death have to be the cruelest of all means? After all, it wasn't the torture of Jesus that saves us. It was his death. The Bible says the wages of sin uh, is death, not torture. And God demonstrates his own love towards us, Romans 5, 8 says, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not that Christ was tortured for us. Now, I don't have an answer to that question, but if I had to guess, I'd say that Jesus suffered the torture that he did to personally bear the worst death that humanity you know, could offer, that sin could offer. So as cruel as the cross was, Jesus bore it willingly, and the cross revealed much about God. It was God's message, and it was a message about God's plan and about God's purposes. Now, I believe that understanding those plans and understanding those purposes leads us to worship. In fact, I want to suggest to you that it's important, it's absolutely crucial that we understand the cross, because if not, we won't worship. Maybe we can't even worship if we don't understand God's plans and purposes behind the cross. So here's my hope for this morning, that this message on the cross is going to give us clarity, and that in that clarity, we're going to find fuel for worship. And I'm going to share with you seven truths about the death of Jesus on the cross. And when we end this talk this morning, we're going to have a time where we're just going to focus our hearts on worship. And we're going to worship God using the means of song. And I, and I hope this morning that at the end of this talk, we will worship like never before. So let's dive in. Here's seven biblical truths about the cross 
and the death of Jesus. The first one is the motivation of the cross was love. One thing that the Bible says over and over and over again, and that is that that God was motivated to die on the cross for his creatures out of his incredible love for us. Out of this incredible love that he made, he had for the creatures that he made. He made us in his image, and his love was the motivation to rescue us. In John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for one of his friends. No doubt Jesus is, is alluding to his own death for them. Jesus tells them no greater love has anyone that he gives up his life for someone else. And I want to say that for us here. You know, there's no greater love than a person can have for someone else than to lay down their life, to give up their life that they might live. Now notice this, Jesus isn't dying for an institution. Jesus isn't dying for a cause. Jesus says, I'm dying for my friends. He loved his friends. Now Paul, talking about his own relationship with Jesus, recognized this love that motivated Jesus. So in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now the best known verse in the Bible, John 3:16, says, For God so loved the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ga- gave him how? Gave him unto death. Gave him that he might die. The verse goes on. So that whoever believes in him should not die or be destroyed or perish, but have everlasting life. So it's out of the love for the world that Jesus dies for us so that we are not destroyed, so that we don't die. Now often we're tempted to to doubt God's love. God says don't. He says whatever you do, don't doubt my love. Look to the cruel and the gruesome cross and know this, know that I love you. You know, I often remind myself of this, and I would encourage you to do that when you're feeling low or feeling like just discouraged. You know, that that God defines or describes himself as love. The Bible, in the Bible, God says, I am love. Not that I have love, but that I am love. My nature, my being is one of love. And that love provided the motivation for the cross. And at the same time, that love was exemplified on the cross through the dying of Jesus. Number two, the nature of the cross was substitutionary. Now, the cross was motivated by the love of God. But it was also uh, revealing the very nature of The very nature, I'm sorry, the very nature of the cross reveals itself to be substitutionary. Jesus bore the death on the cross, not for himself, but for you. And not for himself, but for me. It was for my sin that Jesus bore that death. It was for your sin, not his own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. 
Now here's a verse that brings together both God's motivation of love and, and the nature of Christ's death as being a, a substitute for us. And this Romans 5.8, I already actually quoted it, but here it is again. But God demonstrates His own love for us, there's the motivation, in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now most of us, you know, will probably never have to give our life for someone else. Even if we could, probably most of us would be unwilling to do that. I remember a story, uh, I've told this story before, it was of a story of a little boy where the, his sister needed a transfusion and he was the perfect match for her. And so the parents asked the boy, said, would you be willing to give your blood for your sister? And he thought about it for just a moment and his little lips were quivering and he said yes. And on the day they hooked him up to, to give blood, the blood began to flow And he looked up at his parents and he said, how long will it take for me to die? Now that little boy thought he was giving, giving his blood meant that he was going to give his very life for his sister. He was willing to substitute his life for that of his sister. Now he was willing, it wasn't required of him. Jesus was willing and he did it. He gave up his life, he died, he perished. His life was gone and he did that. For me. Number three, the purpose of the cross was reconciliation. If God's motivation for the cross was love and the nature of the cross was substitutionary, it's because God's purpose in the cross was to reconcile us back to Himself. Now, the word reconcile means literally to exchange. It means to bring into an exchanged or changed relationship. So this means that the cross... The purpose of the cross was to change our relationship with God. Now there's two theological divides, or there is a big theological divide, two sides, over whether the cross reconciles God to men or whether it reconciles men to God. In different schools of theology, well, they emphasize one side of that divide or the other. But the greatest Bible passage uh, on this truth of reconciliation, in my estimation anyway, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 18. Listen to what God writes. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us, this is Paul writing, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now notice that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. But then the Apostle Paul turns around and says, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. Now the true biblical view about reconciliation is that the cross reconciles us to God and it also reconciles, it reconciles us to God and also reconciles God to us. It embraces both aspects of that reconciliation. You see, the cross of Christ satisfies God's justice But the the death of Christ also enables us to come to Christ, to be able to receive what God has done. Here's another verse, Romans 5, 10 through 11. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The death of Jesus changes our relationship with God. We go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. We go from being in hostility with God to being family with God. Now here's how the cross did that. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, Paul again would write, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So here's what the Bible says. When Jesus died on the cross, our sin was dealt with. I mean, it was canceled. Our sin was forgiven. The death that sin demanded of me because I am a sinner and the wages of sin is death, Jesus paid it. Here's how Peter wrote that in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. But wait, you say, you say, but wait a minute, I'm still going to die. How is it that Jesus took my death? Well, you're absolutely right. You're going to die. Okay. Uh, it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. But I will rise from the dead. God will resurrect me and restore me to life. And he'll do that with everybody. Okay. And, and when others, others are risen from the dead, they will die again. They will die the second death. Revelation chapter 21 talks about how they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. Well, I tell you what, folks. Jesus bore not our first death because every man will die once. But at the resurrection, Jesus bore our second death so that we will not die again. And instead, we will have eternal life, immortal life that will never, ever end. Number four, the gift of the cross was unmerited. The cross reconciles those who put their faith in God, having paid for their death, their death that, the, that sin demanded, that sin required. Now, remember, the penalty of sin is death. So the gift of the cross is unmerited, undeserved. It's, it's unearned. It pays my debt for me when I couldn't, I couldn't do it for myself. I was undeserving. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, For while we were still helpless, and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His own love towards us. There's the motivation of the cross. He, he proves His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now there's the substitution, but here's the third thing, that we're, or the fourth thing that we're talking about now. He, he, he dies for those who are unworthy. He dies for those who are not meritorious. God initiated the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, when we were unworthy, undeserving. You, you, Jesus died for you not because you are worth saving. He died for you because He loved you. 
Your sin has led you into rebellion and disobedience, not caring for God, but God cares for you. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, Paul argues that both Jews and Greeks are under are all under sin. As it's written in the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Now here's what Paul is saying there. None of us are meritorious of God's favor. We've all sinned against God. So when Jesus died, he died for, for undeserving people. It was a cold night in uh, February of 2007 when a car uh, carrying Chris Williams and his family was hit by a 17-year-old drunk driver. Immediately, Chris checked on his children in the back seat, and he quickly realized that his 11-year-old son and his 9-year-old daughter were dead. And he looked over to his right, and he watched as his pregnant wife, sitting next to him, exhaled for the last time. And Williams was in so much pain, he could hardly move his arm to turn off the car engine. However, before he was even rescued out of the car, Williams said this to himself, and I quote, Whoever has done this to us, I forgive them. I don't care what the circumstances were, I forgive them. And Chris proved, proved good to his word, going on publicly to forgive uh, his family's killer and actually develop a relationship with this young man and, and seek to restore his life. And that drunk driver, that teenager, I mean, he wasn't worthy of, of Chris's forgiveness. He didn't, he didn't deserve it, yet Chris gave it unmeritoriously to that young man. And I tell you, I mean, I think we kind of get, get the emotional gist of that, but that's what Christ has done for us. When we're just like that young man, so unworthy of Christ's forgiveness, Christ forgives us. Number five, the extent of the cross was universal. When Jesus died on the cross, He died for every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. He died for every man in Mexico. He died for every woman in Wyoming. He died for every boy in Brazil. And he died for every girl in Germany. His death was to atone for the sin of all people. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John understood this. John writes, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, he says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Peter understood this in his second letter, chapter 2. He writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there, were, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Paul would get it. He would write Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he said to Timothy, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Jesus died to save all men, but only those who believe in Him. To them will the salvation of Jesus be credited. 
But Jesus died for all men. The author of Hebrews gets it. He says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. And here's what that means. Jesus died for you. Every one of you in this room. Without fear of being wrong, I say to you, I know, I know that Jesus died for your sin. He died for you, though you are undeserving. He died in your place in order to bring you back to God, to himself, to reconcile you to himself. You may choose not to put your faith in him or to be faithful to him, but one day you will know that Jesus died for you. The sixth truth, the event of the cross was singular. Every year, there's a Love Like You Mean It cruise that sails out of Florida. Every year, at the same time, there's an Acre family vacation, third week of July. Uh, most of the time, it's the third week of July. The Acres go to the beach. Every four years, we repeat a presidential election. But Jesus died on the cross only once, and he will never, ever repeat that. Jesus sacrificed his human life, his, his physical life to death, and though he deserved it not, he did it for me, and he did it for you. He did it for us, but he did it just the one time. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Romans chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Because we know that Christ has been raised from the dead, he will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The high priest of Old Testament stripe offered sacrifices over and over and over. Every year he would walk into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial lamb and he would cover the sins of the people for one more year. But when Jesus died, the Bible says he took his own blood and he sprinkled it before God Almighty and there is no longer any sacrifice needed. There is no longer any sacrifice to ever be made. Jesus, Jesus did it all. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all and it'll never be repeated. Now that brings me to the last truth of the cross. And this, this truth is the demand of the, the, of the cross is surrender. The demand of the death of Jesus is my surrender. Since uh, the 1970s, the U.S. government has moved to an all-volunteer military. And uh, when they did so, back in the 1980s, the, the Army came up with all kinds of great slogans. Be all that you can be, join the Army. It's a great place to start, join the Army. And the Army provided a lot of positive training and a lot of good things. But in 1991, the U.S. went to war. And when they went to war, they began to send soldiers 
over to uh, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, you know, to fight in, uh, in that war. And army guys were saying, you mean you want me to leave my family? You want me to go fight in a war? Well, I tell you what, that was what they had signed up for. That was in the small print, and maybe they didn't realize it, but they were under obligation to go. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, you know, you see he attracted large crowds of people, this, this army of people, if you would. They surrounded him. And, and when he was going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, today being Palm Sunday, when he, was, when he was going into Jerusalem, I mean, they were just cheering and they were going along with that victory march because I, I think they thought they could bask in his reflected glory or maybe grab a share of the prize themselves. But Jesus didn't want any misunderstanding. There was not to be any neglected small print when it came to what he required or what he was expecting of those who would be his disciples, of those who would be his followers. Consider these words of the Lord Jesus. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16. Or how about these words? In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14. Jesus' death for you was unmerited. You, you don't earn it. But his, de his death demands your life. His death demands your all. And Jesus repeated these demands time after time after time in, in those three years in which he preached and taught. He would say things like, you know, you've got to hate your father and mother and, and come and follow me. What, what in the world did Jesus mean by that? I mean, that is so, that is so immense. That is so big. He would say to his followers, why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I say? C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures or any good. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes in chapter 10. And he warns us. He warns us in regard to rejecting the demands of Jesus. And so in chapter 10, verse 26, listen to what the author says. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled under feet the Son of God 
and as regarded as, as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now listen to me carefully. You are free to reject the cross. You are free to reject the demands of the one who hung there. You can deny the master who bought you by his death. You can choose to walk away. You can live for yourself. You can make your life count for your possessions and for your own power and your own pleasure. But you reject him at your own peril. You reject him to your own death. You reject him to the loss of all that God has in store for those who love him, for those who choose him. The demands of the cross are your total surrender to him. You're, you're giving your life to him. You're exchanging, you exchanging your life for his. This morning, I call you to surrender to the cross. I call you to embrace the love of God and accept the demands of the one who died in your place that you might be reconciled to God. I'm calling you all to to faithfully follow Jesus. Where does where does faith begin? Romans chapter 10 beginning in verse uh, verse 8 actually beginning a little bit before verse 8 the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this now verse 8 this is the message of faith that we proclaim if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, I want to offer you an invitation to respond to the message of the cross, the message that was motivated by the love, uh, the, by the love of God, the message, the, the message of the cross that was Jesus died in your place. It was substitutionary. The message of the cross that it was to reconcile you to God, that God desires a relationship with you. He wants you to come to Him. The message of the cross, that that it's an unmerited, undeserved gift that you can do nothing to purchase. It's the message of the cross that it is universal, that it the extent of its appeal is for all men everywhere. And that includes you this morning. It's the message of the cross that it was a one-time event that God did for you and for me, never to be repeated again. And it's the message of the cross that, that God is calling you to come and give your life to follow him, to trust in him, to rest on his unmerited grace. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I invite you right now, I invite you right now where you sit, where you listen, to open your heart and to respond to the cross of Jesus. Will you do that? Will you do that right now? Father, You are aware of every heart and every person 
who's listening to my voice even now. Lord, I pray that you would move in people's hearts and that and that they would surrender to your cross and to your love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.